Thank you for listening to the teaching podcast of Muncie First Church. If you would like to know more about us, go to MuncieFirstChurch.com. Or if you would like to support a ministry, go to the giving page, MuncieFirstChurch.com slash give. Well, let's jump into the teaching from this last week. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at some scripture together here in just a little bit. And... Uh, want to talk to you today this is a little different what we're going to do today is a little different than what i normally do and we're going to begin a series called thanksgiving stories of redemption and it's a whole new series next couple of weeks we'll go on we're going to have testimonies every other week from now on madison yingling is going to give hers next sunday and then the week following that tim kennedy will give his testimony and uh, I'm just looking forward to hearing those and being a part with you when those uh, are given. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy what God is doing. And, you know, he's doing something different in every person's life. And what he's doing in your life matters, okay? And we're going to talk about that a little bit here in just a few minutes. So Thanksgiving Day, every day, every year since I was about eight years old, when I was about eight years old, my dad finally got a TV. We finally got a TV. I know you kids, are the young ones are going, what, you didn't have a TV? How'd you live? We didn't have a TV until I was about fourth grade, somewhere in the middle of my fourth grade year, third grade year, something like that. Um, my parents bought their first black and white TV. And uh, my dad would turn it on from then on thanksgiving day he would turn it on and turn on the thanksgiving day parade anybody here ever watched the thanksgiving day parade yeah we would turn on the thanksgiving day parade and um even though we didn't watch all of it it was always the background noise for thanksgiving as my mom would prepare dinner for us and it was on until the football game started and then that was the background noise uh for thanksgiving the tradition for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade began in 1924. Okay, you've got to go way back. 1924. It was started by a group of the Macy uh, store employees uh, as a way of just getting people to come out for Christmas. And it has evolved into this culture that's really probably as big or almost as big as turkey and dressing and cranberry sauce and pumpkin pie on thanksgiving it's just one of those things that's just huge it started off they used the animals from the central park zoo the zookeepers would parade the animals through the streets of new york city and uh, people would come out and watch and then finally they decided probably that that was a little dangerous parading lions and bears and tigers up and down the streets. so they decided to do something a little different and they got the helium field balloons how many of you like the big balloons you see those when they you know they're just like it's just amazing this year at the parade, there's going to be 15 large balloons, 24 floats, 10 marching bands, 800 clowns. I don't know why they have clowns. I mean, that's just scary, right? You know, I guess they started that before clowns were scary, you know. Uh, 1,500 dancers, cheerleaders, and singers. And as usual, bringing up the rear end of the parade will be old St. Nick, right? Amen. Yeah, he's always there. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a big celebration. I mean, it is really fun, and it's been held, like I said, every year since 1924, with the exception of the years 1942 through 1944, when World War II was being waged, and no one felt like celebrating, so they just canceled the parade for that time. Now, you know, we all love a good parade, 
Did you know that the Apostle Paul, that Paul the Apostle talks about a huge parade? He writes about it in his second letter to the people who live in Corinth and who were part of the church there. And you find it in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And I want to read it to you, starting in verse 14. It says this, but thanks be to God, it should be up on the board, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance, the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. Eugene Peterson, who just, by the way, recently passed away, wrote about it in the message this way. He said, in the Messiah, in Christ, God leads us from place to place in one perpetual victory parade. I love that. Isn't that awesome? You know, parades are held to celebrate and to memorialize things. We hold parades when wars end. Okay? When the war comes to an end and we win, we go, oh, let's celebrate. And everybody comes home and there's victory parades. We have parades to remember and celebrate all of the veterans who have fought and given their lives for our nation, our freedom. Okay, right now, how many of you are veterans? I want you to stand up right now. If you're a veteran in this place, stand up. This is my way of doing this. Come on. Thank you guys for doing that. And ladies who have done that, served our nation. We appreciate you. Yep. Amen. Yep. We give, should be, a lot more parades for you guys than there is, for you ladies, than there has been. Uh, but we do celebrate veterans who have fought and given their lives. Do you realize it was 100 years ago today that World War I ended? That's amazing. You think about that. That's crazy. We have parades on the 4th of July to remember our declaration of freedom from Great Britain. We use parades to celebrate all kinds of different things. Paul uses the imagery of the celebration parades who were, which were held by the conquering Roman armies. Paul lived in the time of Rome. He lived in the time when Rome would go out and they would conquer a civilization and they would bring the plunder back to Rome. And Paul had no doubt witnessed in Rome or in places, witnessed these great parades as these conquering generals would come back and they would march their conquered slaves and wagons full of plunder through the streets of Rome. They did it so that everyone could see and hear and understand and feel the power and the might of Rome on the world. The people of Rome would come out to see this incredible wealth, the gold, the silver, the gems, maybe statues and art that had been conquered and brought back by the armies of Rome. And they had captured it, they claimed it from lands far away. And following the substantial plunder that would be drugged through the streets of, uh, of Rome, they would drag the slaves, the first Slaves that would be brought in would be the female slaves, the, the good-looking young female slaves who would be drugged through the streets of Rome and paraded at the front as, as, as the property of the ones who had conquered. Then they would bring the older and maybe the less attractive as they would follow, and then they were followed by the young men, and there were no old men. They killed them off, but they brought the young men who could serve as slaves, and they brought them, and they were now bound, they were bound by chains and stocks and, and, and tied up so that they could barely move. And they did that 
so that they could show that Rome, in all of its might and power, had conquered another civilization, had overpowered another civilization, had crushed it. And they were bringing them back. Along the route of the parade, they would burn incense to the pagan gods. And the incense they burned wasn't like, you know, you burn in your dorm room, you know, that little bitty thing that just barely burned. It wasn't like that. They burned incense. It was, it was on fire, and it would smell up the streets. The incense would burn and rise up, and it became powerful and distinct. You always knew where the parade was at because you could smell it as it came. And to the conquered people who had just watched, uh, or to the Roman citizens who, who were watching the parade, the smell of the incense was the smell of victory. It was sweet. They loved it, the smell of victory. But to the conquered people who had just watched their mothers and fathers murdered and cut down, who had watched their children stabbed at the end of the swords and who had seen their homes plundered of all the riches and who now stumbled along in stocks as slaves to these barbaric armies, the aroma was the stench of death. It was the very smell of death. And Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. And when I read that in light of what I just said to you, thanks seems so out of place here. Because Paul's talking about being conquered. He's talking about being conquered by God. And why would you be thankful for being conquered and being led in a triumphal procession or triumphal parade? And I want you to get the imagery here because it's very important. Paul writes as one who's been conquered and led, and he understands we are being led in this parade of the conquered. We are being led in this parade of the conquered. He remembers his day of conquest. He remembers the day that he was conquered. He was on the road to Damascus, and as he traveled along, the bright light hit him in the eyes, knocked him from the horse or the the donkey, whatever it was that he was riding, down onto the ground. And he heard the voice, why, Paul, how long will you kick against the goats? And then he, he is lifted up and he's blind now, he can't see. And they take him to the house on the street called Straight and they leave him there. And he lays there in that room, alone, nothing for three days as he contemplates what has just happened, blind, until someone comes and speaks to him and re- God removes the scales from his eyes. Paul is the slave of the one who has conquered him. And Paul writes, our conquest is a moment of triumph for us, which seems so backward. Because when people come, when, when we are conquered by an outside source, if, if someone would come here and conquer us as a nation, we would not be thankful for that. Paul writes, our conquest is a moment of triumph. Jesus has triumphed, he says, over our sin and our death. Do you get that? Because, see, every one of us is a sinner. We're born that way. Beautiful little John. He's gorgeous, four weeks old. And he's born with a sin nature that has to be taken care of. Or it will destroy him someday. That's hard. I look in the little eyes, I go, well, wait a minute, he's beautiful. No, yeah, but he's still got that sin nature. Find out. I got a two-year-old that's my granddaughter, and she's gorgeous, and she's sweet, and you've all met her, her name's Ellie, and 
I'm really proud of her, and I think she's wonderful, and she seems so sweet. And then last night at the grocery store, her sin nature kicked in pretty good. <laughs> and it bit her, too, because she was running away from me, and I was trying to get her to stop, and I was holding on to her jacket and telling her to stop, and she pulled, and she pulled loose, and when she did, she went <laughs> on her face. And then she screamed and cried because it was all my fault. Because that's what our sin nature does for us. It blames everybody else. You know? And she's going to have to learn. We're in the process right now helping her deal with that. And God's got to conquer that sin nature in LA or she'll end up in places she never dreamed of. And they won't be good places. They just won't be good places. We are led by God in triumphal procession. We are conquered by God's love. We're the ones who are marching in procession. We're marching in triumph because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We're marching in a triumphant parade. Our lives are a triumphant parade. We are marching in this parade right now. We are being led in a conquered triumphant parade right now. We're walking with Jesus in a victory lap over his victory lap over sin, death, and the grave And as we march in this life parade of victory and triumph that Jesus has won for us, our lives have an aroma. Did you know you have a smell? (laughs) You have an aroma. And we who are God's children, we who are the church, we become the sweet smell of life and hope and victory over death for those who will believe. When they hear it and they accept their hearts, they smell the sweet smell and they go, wow, that's amazing. But here's the truth, for those who will not accept and believe, our words, our lives, even the very sight of us becomes condemnation or the stench of death to those who do not believe. That's the reason Christianity is so offensive. People are not offended when you say God. People are not offended when you talk about Buddha. People are not offended much when you talk about Muhammad. But bring up the name of Jesus and see what happens. Offense everywhere. People are just offended. Because it's the smell of death. Because there's no maybe in it. You accept him, you get to live. You don't accept him, and you've chosen, not by him, but you've chosen death. Our lives, as we live it, it spreads the sweet, savory aroma of Jesus to, and his love to those who will accept it. So what I want to do this morning is this. I want to take this idea I'm presenting, and I want to show you the parade a little bit and encourage you to be thankful for the victory parade that you're being led in. And that's why Amy was supposed to give her testimony. I wanted you to see some of her story in this. And then I'm going to talk to you about the victory parade that I'm being led in. You you and I are both being led in a victory parade right now. And I know that a lot of us have a hard time seeing, we have a hard time seeing our lives as being led in victory. I talk to a lot of people who go, well, you know, I don't know on this. A a lot of us have some dark places, some hard places in our lives. Things that we just, you know, it's best if I just sweep it over there and and hide it and act like it didn't happen. We just want to cover it up. I mean, we have some things we did, right? Anybody here want to be up here and just tell every bit of your story right now without any hesitation? Just, you know, most of us don't want to do that. I understand that. There's some things that have caused us a lot of pain in our lives. There's some places that we're embarrassed about. And there's some areas that when the holidays come around, we just as soon go hide so we don't have to face them. Am I hitting any place with any of you right now? So I want to share some of my life with you this morning. And I know you know some of it. Some of you do, some don't. 
But over the next three Sundays, I want to let I want to take a look at the Thanksgiving Day Victory Parade because we're thankful for what God has done. Now, as I said, I know a lot of you know a lot about me. My life began April the 9th, 1957, in Ball Memorial Hospital here in Muncie. I was born to a man named John R. Dill and his wife Helen L. Dill. I was the second of five kids. My sister Miriam is older than me, and I have three younger sisters, Marsha, Marlene, and Melody. We are the M's. Why do people do that? I know one thing, I'm very special because I have all sisters. I married a woman who has all sisters. I am the only male in, in 10 siblings, and that makes me really special or something. So. My dad worked at GM. He worked for Guide Lamp over in Anderson at the time. We lived in a little a subdivision, a little area called Meadowbrook. Anybody ever heard of Meadowbrook in Anderson? It's a little tiny houses, box houses, built right after the World War II ended so that people like uh, who had fought in the war and came home could buy a house cheap. And so they, that's where they lived. And I lived there until I was eight years old. It was a great time to grow up. It was maybe... I can't tell you, it was amazing. I mean, we could walk around playing the subdivision at that age without anybody ever worrying where your kids were. My mom would give me a dollar and send me to the grocery store four blocks away and say, bring back bread and the change. I'd go there, I'd tell the grocer what I wanted, who my mom was, he knew what bread to get her, he got her the bread, he gave me the change, I walked back home, and no one ever thought anything about that. And I know that I had, couldn't have been more than first or second grade when she did that with us back then. That was normal. Everybody did that. We played on the streets. No one was afraid. You played outside with the other kids in the summer until the street lights came on, and then you went home. If one of the neighbor fa uh, families, if one of the other moms yelled at you, you knew that she was going to call your mom before you got home. <laughs> and you got in trouble by all of them, if need be. Most all the dads in that neighborhood worked at GM. Most of them were the younger men, and they most all worked second shift. So oftentimes in the evening in the summer, the women would gather, and our house seemed like a local center place, and they would come down in our yard. It was a little bigger than some of the others, and we had a swing set, and they would come down there, and all the kids would get on the swing set, and we'd play tag, and we'd be running around hollering, carrying on, and the women would sit there on the steps and around, and there would be 10, 15, 20 ladies sitting there talking, laughing, and it was long summer evenings of fun. It was good community. We moved when my parents decided to buy a bigger place, and we had run out of room with five kids. You can imagine that little house was really, really little. We had two bedrooms, and uh, so, you know, it was just tiny. So they decided it was time to move. I was in third grade when they bought an old farmhouse, a barn, and five acres out on Park Road just west of Anderson. My dad set out to remodel, and we spent the whole summer out at that new place working, tearing out walls and roofing, <coughs> and I was really included in the working all the stuff got tore out. I had to drag out to a burn pile. It was a lot of work, but we spent the summer out there. My parents decided to move in, even though the house was unfinished before my fourth grade year. So we started a whole new school at a new uh, year at a new school, no friends. The house I moved into was a house with no plumbing, no running water, no toilet, no bathtub, no stove to cook on, a very old refrigerator, no freezer, heat in the living room only, no carpets, no finished floors, no walls in the bedrooms upstairs, just plywood dividers, no ceiling upstairs, the exposed rafters to the roof with the nails that you had roofed with showing so that when it got cold, 
those nails would freeze and you'd have icicles hanging over your head. And in the spring, when they'd melt, they'd drip in your face while you were sleeping. And it would get so cold in the room upstairs that you couldn't have a glass of water. It would freeze. And in the summer, it would get so hot that the bed was just a puddle of sweat. And that's how we lived. We moved in with the promise that dad would finish that place up, that he was going to be able to work while he was there and take care of everything. But he never did. It was mostly the same when I left for Olivet in 1975 as it was in fourth grade, except he had bought a new refrigerator with a freezer and a stove to cook on. Other than that, it was pretty much the way we lived our whole childhood in that house. I know what an outhouse is by experience. I remember when I first moved here, I'd tell some of the really older folks then who had experienced that as a child, and they'd look at me and they'd go, you don't know what you're talking about. And I'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, I do. I do. My parents were church people. My dad and mom pastored a church in Frankfort, Indiana when I was first born. We lived in Anderson. I was in church probably my first day. I was four days old, not four weeks. I was there four days old. My mom was probably preaching the message that day, I imagine. They grew tired of the drive from Anderson to Frankfurt, and they started attending the Alexandria Church of the Nazarene when I was about three, and then they moved to Anderson First Church when I was five or six years old. My mom is a great lady, a great praying lady, and she prayed with us kids daily. She read Bible stories. She had devotions with us. She taught us about Jesus. I remember even in tough circumstances of our unfinished home, wonderful evenings, playing games, popcorn, listening to the Anderson Indians, the Mass Knights Pirates basketball games on a tube radio that would whistle and hum and you know how that all went when yeah, some of you older ones. But I got to tell you something, my dad was never there during that time. He was always at work. On Sundays and Wednesdays, no matter what, we were at church with my dad and mother on Sunday, but my mother only on Wednesday. Church was where my friends were. Children, Sunday school, youth group became my peer pressure group, and that's what we were all about. My, my mom went back to school. She came over here to uh, Ball State University to finish up her master's in education so she could teach. My dad moved to days at GM, and so from about my fourth grade through my seventh grade year, my sisters and I spent our summer days alone in the country with no one to oversee us. And if I was in fourth grade, my youngest sister must have been about three years old. And we didn't even have a telephone when we lived out there. So we were out there by ourselves. If something happened, we were on our own. And no one even knew we were out there. There were chores assigned and expectations to meet. And I don't remember the penalties for my sisters. I don't ever remember them ever getting in trouble. I don't think they ever did. But one of my chores was to mow the two acres. And my dad didn't believe in riding mowers. Until I left to go to all of that. And then he got one. And so I would mow those two acres with a push mower while they were gone. And I was fourth, fifth grade. Third, fourth grade. And I was pushing that lawn. And if I got, didn't get it done as he expected it to be done, when he would come home, he would usually hit me and kick me. And scream at me. Dad was working most of the time two shifts at that point at Guide. He would work mornings through his shift and then stay on and work second shift as well to make money. My mother started teaching school and with all the money they had coming in, you would have thought they would have started living at a higher standard, fix the house, get some things taken care of, buy some clothes, do the things that needed to be done, but it did not happen. The house stayed the same. The clothes we wore were clean, but old and worn and out of date. 
The cars we drove were terribly worn out. My friend Mark Bennett, who is an attorney over in Anderson who grew up with me, says that he remembers at the church we were considered the poor family at Anderson First Church, even though that was never true. There was always plenty. We just didn't use it. We had to ride the bus to school daily with the kids from Edgewood. And if you know Edgewood and Anderson, it's the affluent area of Anderson. And all the kids whose parents had lots of money lived in Edgewood. And their bus would stop in front of our dilapidated house. And us poor kids, as they saw us, would get on the bus. And they didn't want you to sit with them. Which resulted in fistfights and whatever else you had to do to try to survive. I learned about sports around my fourth grade year and started doing pretty well, baseball, football, wrestling. My dad came once in a while when he could. I don't remember my mother ever coming at all. I quit sports after my junior year and went back to, and went to work because I wanted money and I wanted so I could buy clothes and have a car and be like everyone else. So I dropped out of all the sports. So for most of my childhood and early teen years, I lived out this life that was so different and difficult to understand. I, it was very frustrating as a kid. I'm not saying this now. I, I want you to stop here. I want to stop here. Don't, don't feel sorry for me because that's not what I'm talking about here, okay? And I'm going to help you understand that. But Darcy says this. She said, kids are wonderful observers and horrible interpreters. And I, I think that's true. For all those years, I would look around and I observed everything that was going on. And here's what I learned. I learned that adults are all very harsh at times. Now, there was exceptions. There was a few people at church, and I'm going to talk about them next week. But there were so many harsh people in my life during that time. It felt awful. I learned that people make fun of you if you make mistakes and if you're poor. I learned that I was weird and different than everybody else. I learned that it was best not to say anything because if you don't say anything, you don't get hit. And besides that, I was a stupid kid and I didn't have anything to say anyway. I was told that. I learned that I wasn't special and that I certainly wasn't important and that I wasn't as good as the other kids at school. And on top of that, my dad's favorite nickname for me, which, used, which he used only when he was angry or which was about the only time he spoke to me or with the exception being when he wanted me to go do something for him was, hey, stupid cockroach. And that was my name. And oftentimes that was followed by a foot or a fist because I didn't move quick enough or couldn't read his mind. And my dad pointed out to me frequently, your last name is Dill, so therefore you will amount to nothing your whole life. And I believed him. And so I quit trying in school very much. I never remember being hugged by either my dad or my mom in my entire life. I don't ever remember either one of them saying, I love you, until I was back here as your pastor, and my mother said it when she was in the nursing home, and I would go to visit her. The first time I remember being told, I love you, by anyone was a girlfriend in my senior year in high school, and I was so embarrassed, because I didn't know people said that to each other. I'm serious about that. That's true. My relationship with my dad continued to deteriorate when I was a senior in high school, if it could get any worse. I was working full-time by that time at St. John's Hospital in Anderson as the evening orderly. I wanted to buy a car. I made quite a bit more money than most kids my age at that point. I was still going to school, but I was working as well. And I wanted to buy a car. My dad said I could not have the car because I wasn't responsible enough. I was a junior in college before I finally was able to get a car. In the meantime, I learned some mechanical skills, and so 
my dad had all these old cars. That's what he did. He drove old cars. If one wasn't running, he drove the other one. You know, it's just kind of what he kept. He kept, I called it his fleet. And so one of my jobs then began to be to take care of all of his old junk cars, keep them running, and get them working. But that did nothing for me, including not getting paid or use of cars most of the time. I worked second shift at St. John's in Anderson at the hospital as that orderly. And I can remember many occasions getting off work at about 11 o'clock p.m. And since I didn't have a car, if he didn't come pick me up, I would have to walk the three to four miles home at midnight or so through what is really a rough section of Anderson, especially at that time at 25th and Madison. I never had many friends in high school, but I had a few guys I hung out with. They were from our church, and I'm thankful for that, by the way. My parents figured they were okay, and so I was allowed to pretty much do what I wanted in high school. I went to church every Sunday. I worked on Wednesday evenings my junior and senior years, so I dropped out of youth group. The summer between my junior and senior years, I worked at a place called Shogar's Carpet, which was downtown Anderson next to Miller Huggins. If you know where that's at right now, that's where it was at. I became friends with the owner's son. His name was Danny Shoger. Danny was the coolest dude I had ever met in my entire life. He had lived in California. He rode a Harley Davidson motorcycle. That's why I still ride him. He got me started. He had a beard. That was so cool back then. He had fought in Vietnam. I was 17. He was 23. And I worked with him every day that summer. I'm telling you, everywhere Danny went, girls were sure to follow. It was amazing. I had never seen anything quite like that in my entire life, and I wanted to be like Danny. He showed me simple things. I don't understand why, but I know this, that God sent him into my life, and I am so thankful for him, by the way. He taught me simple things like, you know, you need to wash your face. I know that sounds, you need to wear deodorant. Let me show you how to cut your hair. And most of all, he told me I was as good as everybody else. And I have no idea why, but I began to believe him. And that's how I got the job at the hospital, because he told me that. And so my confidence was enough I could go even try to apply for that job, and I got it. Well, I went to work at the hospital at the beginning of my senior year. And I worked there full-time as the second shift orderly, as I said. And I worked in OR, I worked in ER, I was on all the medical floors. I have done things, been places that any 17-year-old should never go. Uh, I was in surgery at 17, not as having surgery, as helping in surgery. I stood at one of the examples in the ER holding a young girl who had been in a bad car accident. They couldn't figure out what was going on. And I felt, and I felt something, and I said something, and her brain matter was running down onto my hands. That was, I mean, I experienced those kinds of things at 17. I experienced traumatic events. I was in on all that. And some of you who worked in the hospital know what I'm talking about. It's sometimes kind of crazy. There were hardly any male nurses in those days, so second shift was me and about 300 women. Not all bad. <laughs> I began to hear things, and they began to treat me very special, and my confidence began to grow. Again, I think God put me there for a very special reason. And I met a young lady who was an aide and a student in the school, a nurse's school at Anderson college at the time and we began to go out and my confidence began to explode and my dad became even more angry because now I quit believing the lies he told me and I didn't let him control me and make me do what he wanted to do. 
Now, during this time, my faith was kind of stuck on hold as I lived a good life of being popular at work and making lots of money for a kid. But God encountered me there in the hospital in a very deep and powerful way. I was working in ER that night, and they brought in a guy who had been shot in the head. His name was, his last name was Tellus. He was a friend of mine from high school, a guy I knew from high school, an acquaintance, not really a friend, but it was his brother, his older brother. And it happened in a bar, and he had been shot. And they brought him in, and they said, they determined there was nothing they could do. And so they had assigned me to the job of being in a room with him alone, in the dark, in this room, just one lamp on. And my job was to take his blood pressure every 10 minutes as it dropped and as he died and to let them know when he died. And so I sat in there with him while he went through this process. And the problem was he could still talk, but he couldn't know what he was saying. But he yelled and screamed loudly the whole time, God damn, just over and over and over, all night long, until he died. And God spoke to me in that room and said, there's people dying just like this everywhere, and you gotta do something. My heart began to be changed at that point towards ministry. I'd always felt a kind of a call, but had pushed it back. I wanted to make lots of money. I was on a journey to show those people who made fun of me what it was really about. And I was going to make so much money that I came back and bought every one of their houses and kicked them out. That was kind of where I was at. (laughs) Going to all of that. I, uh, I applied to Anderson University and Olivet Nazarene University, and I chose to go to Olivet mostly because it meant I could get out of my parents' house and move away, and it just seemed like a good thing to do. I started school there in the fall of 1975. Dad and mother pulled up to the curb of old Chapman Hall. Some of you went to Olivet, know where I'm talking about. Chapman Hall pulled right up next to old Chapman Hall in a 1964 Chevy, one of my dad's old depleted cars that junk, the best one he had at the time. And we pulled up there, and he helped me pull all my stuff out of the trunk. He set it on the curb. He got back in the car and said, see ya, and got in the car and drove away with my stuff sitting there. Now, you guys who have taken your kids to school know you don't do it that way. You know, everybody's like crying and moaning and, oh, I'm leaving my baby. You know, that didn't happen. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. I paid for the first year of college out of the money I saved. I don't remember him ever giving me money for the first two years at least. And so the story went on, I, I went through, and I graduated from all of that in five years. It took me a little longer than most, because I changed my major a few times along the way. But I finally graduated with a degree in theology and with the idea of going into ministry. I, I became, um, my parents during that time visited all of that one time when I graduated that I remember. Maybe one other time they came up for something, but but they came up when I graduated. That, that's the only time I remember. My first church assignment, I was a youth pastor at Danville Southside Church of the Nazarene. My parents never, ever came over there. I never saw them. They never darkened the door of that church. Uh, I got married following that. Darcy and I got married, and we had met at Olivet, and we, we got married in Michigan. And uh, the night of our rehearsal, my parents didn't make it up. And I wasn't sure they were going to come. Finally, my sisters said they would drive if they would ride. And so they came up and they actually made it for the wedding. But that was it. They didn't. It was just like not a big deal. We went to seminary and we were in Kansas City for five years. And uh, while we were out there, we had John, our firstborn. And my parents never came to see him during that time. I finally brought him home. I don't know how old he was. Joanne came. She came out and took care of Darcy. 
but my parents didn't come out. And I don't remember how old we was. It was several months old before my mom and dad ever met, you know, because they just didn't come out. They finally came to the seminary. They finally came to Kansas City when I graduated. And, and that's, again, my sisters drug them out there. Um, I have people ask me when they hear the story, how do you not get bitter and angry? Because there is a lot of things in that that really hurt. And there's a lot of pain in that. But first of all, I want to say this. I know it's not as bad as some of your stories. I understand. I didn't, for whatever reason, God didn't let me get off the rails that far, you know, on some things. You know, some other things, you know, but, but I think the reason I'm not bitter and angry is because of this. This is the story of how I met Jesus. All of that. That's how I met Jesus. I don't know if you get that or not. The point is, I wouldn't change it. Not even one little bit. Because, see, I don't know what would happen if I changed it. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to have a dad I could have had a real conversation with. You know, he and I never had a real conversation. Not one time did we ever talk. Everything I ever said was stupid. And then, as he got older and wanted to talk, there was just nothing to ever talk about. We tried, but it just never happened. And I would love to have a conversation with a dad but I would not give up anything in my life for that conversation. And here's why. Because it's my parade that God was leading me in. It was his journey. It was that parade. It was my journey that I met Jesus in. It was that, that's how I came to know him. It was in that journey that Jesus overcame my sin and death and he captured me. It was in that mess that I came to know Jesus and he loved me. And if anything in that was changed, I may not have been open to Jesus. I might have closed off. I might have been self-sufficient. I might have had all, everything I needed. But it was in that that he used all of that to bring me to the place that my heart was soft and he could say, I love you. And I could hear that. And if anything else had been different, I might not have. If the pressure had come off, I might have drifted away. So while the journey was difficult and even painful at times, and I... I need to tell you, I'm nothing but extremely grateful that God used all of that to lead me in triumphant procession to himself. All of it. Every bit of it. And it seems to me that God is doing the very same thing in your life as well. And you may not understand that. And some of you are probably struggling going, well, I don't understand why my husband, I don't understand why my dad, my mom, I don't understand why at work, I don't, and you know, and on and on and on. We all have those things. It may seem like life is hard and mostly unfair, and you may often wish things could be different, but I believe that the resurrected Jesus is at the front leading the triumphal parade we call life, and that we are perfectly in the position he has us in so that we can become his children. And some of you have become angry, some bitter. Some of you may hate your parents for what they did. You may hate a spouse or an ex-spouse. You may hate a boss. I have to tell you that in my adult years, in many ways, it never got too much better. <laughs> I, I can remember nights after I moved here. My dad's living just over in Anderson, in the North Anderson, or at least it wasn't South Anderson. He was living in North Anderson by then. And uh, phone ring. I hate to bother you. Now what do you need? My TV won't work. Dad, it's 11 o'clock at night. I know. Could you come over? And so I'd make the trip over to Anderson to fix his remote because he sat on it and deprogrammed it. <laughs> or, could you come over? I need help. 
need some salt in the water softener. Never, never at a, a convenient time, always whatever. And, you know, and it couldn't wait. It had to be now. And I get it. I mean, it's okay. My dad was born with some issues. I mean, I could tell you the medical terms of some things. And God allowed me to figure a lot of that out. And in the learning and understanding, I accepted what God allowed me to see. And I learned to love my dad. And I thank God for what he did. It's okay, you know. I learned to love my dad. I miss him. I do. I, you know, I didn't think when he died, I thought, hey, it's not going to be that big. It has been a big deal. I miss my dad, and I love my dad. I got to tell you a funny story, and then I'll be done. My dad was in a bad way. It was his last day of life. We didn't know that at the time. I'd found him. He'd had a diabetic, uh, it was almost a diabetic coma when I found him, but we got him some sugar and he came back and got him to the hospital and they didn't catch it. He had an infection we didn't know about and they didn't catch it at the hospital. Sent him home and I was bringing him home and I was trying to get him up the stairs and he was kind of weak. And I was trying to get him up there three or four stairs and you know what? He turned around because he was going to fall and I was the only person there that could catch him and he put his arms around me. He had to hug me. <laughs> I got a hug out of my dad. He didn't know that. Maybe he didn't know it, but hey, I'm calling it a hug, you know? And I was thankful for that. And he died the next day. He had to, went into a coma and died, the, and died from that, you know, right away. But here's the deal. Through all this, I'm being led by Jesus in a triumphant procession where he is trying to bring me to himself. He wants me. And I live in victory, and I live in joy in that truth. I'm not walking around, and I'm not telling you my story so that you go, boy, poor Pastor Mark, oh man, I, you know, don't feel sorry for me. God used that to bring me here, and to bring me to the place where I'm at today, and to bring me to Darcy, and I have two great boys, and I have this wonderful life now, and it's all because God used all of that to bring me to what He wanted it to be. And I am Saying all this to say this, I am totally, absolutely, 100% thankful for every moment of it. There's an old song we used to sing in church. Some of you will remember it. It goes, it will be worth it all. Remember that song? Let's sing that together. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One. All sorrow. That's the answer, guys. It's going to be worth it all. And it's what we're going through now. Paul says the trials that I'm going through are light and momentary. That they really don't matter when it's all added up. Because it's our journey. It's our parade. And guys, if you let it, it can be the smell, the sweetest smell, the sweetest aroma you've ever smelled. It's going to be worth it all. It's worth it all now. I've got to be honest with you. You know, if it wasn't for that, I would have had that experience of getting to be with little Ella yesterday. I think that leads up to all that. And that's worth it. 
worth it? It's worth it to get to hear my sons tell me that they love me or that, well, they don't really tell me they love me that much. They just kind of show me, and it's awesome. And guys, it's going to be worth it in eternity. It is going to be so worth it. It really is. We're going to receive communion together today as a response to this. I, I just feel like it's important for us to receive the body and the blood of Christ today and to remind ourselves that through his death and his resurrection, he has conquered it all. conquered every bit of it. Paul writes about it. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, The cup is the new covenant, my blood. Do this. Whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim his death, his death which bought us victory, his death which leads us today in triumphant procession. Amen? Amen. We're going to pray and then you can come up here to the front and I'll be here in the middle and, and just come up the middle. If you're over on the sides, if you would, could you maybe uh, come up last and then, you know, you can come around and go. But come up in the middle and, and go out that way and then the sides can come up and, and we'll just uh, all come up and uh, take the communion together. Let me pray. Father, right now, Jesus, we just want to give you praise. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Thank you for the journey that you're leading every one of us on. They're all different. Because you know who we are. You knew me so intimately. You knew what I needed, and you gave me what I needed, and you used that to bring me to you. And you gave victory. And Lord, you brought me to a place where I can proclaim the goodness of God in the midst of all this. And we just give you praise. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.